Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The following program is a production of Chilling Entertainment and the creative team at Chilling Tales for Dark Nights and a proud member of the Simply Scary Podcast Network. Visit simplyscarypodcast.com to learn more about this and our other weekly storytelling programs and become a patron today to show your support and get instant access to our extensive archive of downloadable ad-free tales of terror. Thank you for listening, and enjoy the show. Good evening. I'm storyteller Otis Gyre, and I ain't your grandfather. From where I'm from, we don't do bedtime stories. And if that's what you were expecting, you're in the wrong place. If it's terrifying tales you're after, well then, I've got just the thing. Get comfortable, settle in, turn off the lights, if you dare. Your night is about to get a whole lot darker. <laughs> Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Good evening, you're listening to Scary Stories Told in the Dark. Welcome to Season 3, Episode 21. I'm your host, Otis Jiry. In tonight's episode, I'll be performing four stories for you about mysterious maladies, deranged decisions, technological terror, and unbearable truths best left buried. You're listening to the standard edition of tonight's program. If you'd like to show your support and enjoy an extended version of this and other episodes with twice the terror, visit simplyscarypodcast.com and click Patrons in the upper menu to sign up today. Thank you for your support. 
Now it's time to get started, so lock your doors, turn your lights down low, and settle in. The show's about to begin. <laughs> Our first tale of terror this evening comes to us, courtesy of author S.P. Hickey. Without further ado, I present to you, Charles Bonnet Syndrome. I suffer from a condition called Charles Bonnet Syndrome, or visual release hallucinations, if you want to get more technical. It's a condition that's far more common than you might realize. It's estimated that as many as half of people with gradual loss of vision will experience one or more bouts over their lifetime. Yet, I'm willing to bet that most of you have never heard of it. And the reason for that is because most sufferers are scared to tell anybody what we experience. I know I was, but I'm getting ahead of myself. My name is Andrew, and I'm 26. Two years ago... I woke up with awful blurred vision, every single edge and detail clouded as if somebody had smeared Vaseline on a camera lens. And it never got better. I was scared then and got over to Dr. Harper's surgery as fast as I could, suddenly needing to take a cab rather than climb in the car I'd driven without incident ever since I bought it three years ago. The doctor did some tests, asked me some questions, have you been much thirstier lately? How often do you urinate? How would you describe your tiredness levels? And then gave me the diagnosis that changed my life forever. Diabetes. Type 1. He explained that I would need to take insulin shots with every meal, that eating the wrong foods without monitoring my blood sugar could see me drop into a coma or worse. Then he got to my eyes. Andrew, your diabetes has resulted in maculopathy. Do you know what that is? I shook my head dumbly, already reeling with the shock of my diagnosis. And Dr. Harper went on. It's when the diabetes affects the blood vessels at the back of your eye, blocking them and causing them to leak into the macula, the center part of your retina that helps you to perceive color in fine detail. When these blood vessels leak into the macula, it can cause significant damage. With a lump in my throat, I asked, Okay, so how do we make this better? I couldn't see Harper's face properly when he spoke, but his tone of voice was enough to tell me what I'd been dreading. I'm sorry, Andrew, he replied gravely. Perhaps if we'd caught this a little sooner, we might have had some treatment options available to us, but I'm afraid the damage has been pretty extensive. We can take steps to arrest the development of the condition, but I'm afraid it's irreversible. I felt as if my world had come crashing down around me. I was just 24, still at my physical peak. I was active, playing basketball and cycling a couple of times a week, and now my health, my body, and my sight had been taken from me. The first six months were tough. I broke up with my girlfriend, a sweet girl called Holly, who tried to make it work but couldn't because I was so damn angry all the time. I lost my job because if there's one thing an architect needs is his eyes. 
I even fell out with a lot of my friends, making excuses to not meet with them, until they stopped asking. In truth, it was jealousy on my part. Envy that they got to keep on living while everything I had ever hoped for had been snatched away. I became a recluse, never leaving my apartment, barely bothering to wash, shave, or get dressed each day. I was so sure that my life was over, I even stopped trying to live it. I was an asshole. It took me a long time to realize this, but in the end, it was the nurse assigned to visit me at home, a tall, no-nonsense, experienced woman called Lois, who brought this to my attention. You're an asshole, she said. What? I gasped, shocked at her language. So you've got diabetes. Do you know how many people do? She asked. Then, before waiting for my answer, she continued, Do you think they all hide in their apartments, refusing to get on with their lives? Losing your vision's a terrible thing. You do have my sympathy, but, Andrew, it's no excuse to give up. But you don't, I argued, trying to defend myself. But she hadn't finished. Understand? She growled. One of the bravest men I know was paralyzed from the neck down when he was just a child, and he hasn't given up. You can do so much more with your life. And you have people that want to help you do that, but you can't even be bothered to shave that ugly fucking beard off. Stop being a crybaby and make a fucking difference. Of course, it didn't happen overnight, and I argued with her. I was furious at her blunt insensitivity and told her to leave. I said I'd tell her superiors, but she laughed and told me I wouldn't. You won't because you're a smart guy and you've got too much pride for that, she said. I'll see you next week. That night I shaved, I opened my curtains, and actually looked around. Things were blurry, but when I really looked, I could see the things scattered around my home. The mess I'd let it become. When Lois came back the following week, the place was tidy. I was clean-shaven, dressed. I'd even attempted to try and comb my hair. She didn't say anything about it, but did mention the argument of the week before. But she took me out for coffee down the street. She guided me along the sidewalk to the coffee shop, talking to me, reassuring me. It was daunting, even though it was less than a block away. But I felt so proud when I got there. We talked, me and Lois, I think even laughed. Afterwards, she walked me home. Then, when she helped me back inside, she said, it's nice to meet you at last, Andrew. That day was the beginning of my new life. I moved to a new apartment, a ground floor place, and joined a group of other young people with visual impairments. I made friends. I got out every day, even if it was just a short walk, but I made a point of seeing what I could of the world. I bought what I could, but the Sawyers, the old couple that ran the local store, would bring my groceries by once a week. Clark's a gruff old coot, but uh, he refuses to coddle me, and he has told me that he respects me for being like I am, for maintaining my independence, for not giving up. From a guy like him, that's one of the sweetest things I've ever heard. Things were going so well. And then, one year ago, it started. I walked into my living room, a mug of coffee in my hand, and I saw a Victorian funeral carriage stood right there on my rug, complete with two huge, proud horses in full livery, adorned with long black plumes in their bridles. 
They stood perfectly still while the driver, a small bearded man in period costume and a top hat, fidgeted with the reins and peered at me expectantly. Bizarrely, they were far cleaner than the usual blurry shapes that I could see. Damn near pissed my pants. I dropped the cup, spilling scalding hot coffee over my bare feet, jumping backwards with a cry of pain and alarm. When I returned my attention to the horses and carriage back in the room, they were gone. At that moment, I wondered if I was going mad. Apparently, most of us do, which is understandable. How would you feel if you'd seen the exact same sight in your home? Unless you're Jack the Ripper, I imagine many of you do not have a coach and a horse just lying around. I certainly didn't. Eventually, after much quiet swearing to myself and more than a little self-delusion, I managed to convince myself that I had not seen what I thought I had, that it was just merely a very vivid daydream. This seemed to work, and I got on with living, even if I entered that same room a little more cautiously in the days that followed. Finally, I forgot about it. Two weeks later, I saw a giant, floating, swirling orange ball in my bathroom. I damn near pissed myself again. I stood, staring at it, this bizarre, rotating, levitating globe that was a little larger than a beach ball hanging in midair over my tub, open mouthed for a full ten seconds, before finally screwing my eyelids tightly closed and whispering to myself, That isn't there. That isn't there. After five seconds, I opened my eyes again. It wasn't there. Have you ever had to cause to doubt your own sanity? To wonder whether what you perceive is truly there or if your mind has betrayed you? Honestly, compared to the loss of my vision, the prospects of losing my wits was so much more terrifying. I fought against adversity and took pride in the fact that I am not just a survivor, but somebody who is living his own life. How could I do that if I was insane? I barely slept that night, and I remained jumpy for days afterward. Any sign of movement or any unfamiliar shape would set my pulse racing, would cause me to doubt whether it was truly there. It was the toughest time I'd ever been through, worse even than that time after I was diagnosed with diabetes. At least when Dr. Harper had told me about the diabetes, I had a definitive prognosis. I was given facts by a medical professional. My affliction was physical. It had a name. And most important, it had a treatment plan. This was something else. My own mind it turned against me. My senses and perception of reality had become twisted and unreliable. It's only when you're in that position when you realize just how terrifying it is. Your senses, and the way in which your brain interprets them, are your only true defenses against danger. You perceive danger, and you avoid it, preventing your body from becoming harmed. But what happens when you can't trust your perception to alert you to dangers that are truly there? Lois picked up the problem first, noticing my skittish manner. She asked what was wrong, if I needed to talk about something, but I told her no, I was fine but I hadn't been sleeping well. That last part was true. 
I hadn't been able to sleep a wink. Just the very thought of being institutionalized, spending the rest of my days a sedated, blue pajama-clad zombie in a white room with only the echoing cries of my fellow inmates for company, terrified me beyond measure. But what was the alternative? Live life as a risk to myself and others? Ultimately, I chose to ignore it. I reasoned that if I was able to function around other people without them realizing what was going on, that was good enough. A full month passed before the next incident, and I really did think that maybe I'd put this whole mess behind me. With every passing day, my confidence had grown, so that Wednesday morning, I stepped out onto the sunny street feeling pretty carefree. Each Wednesday, I'd treat myself to a latte down at Joe's, the same coffee shop that I had visited with Lois. It was a custom that gave me a great deal of pleasure, one that had seen me forge friendships with other regulars as well as the staff, including Joe himself. As I made my way down the street, white stick in hand, I glanced about me, taking in the colors and shapes of the world around me. I enjoyed the feel of the sun on my face and the sound of birds singing. It was a good day. Then I saw them. A party of pilgrims, six of them, all dressed in settler-era attire, sitting cross-legged on the asphalt. They didn't look at me. Instead, they engaged in a heated yet strangely silent conversation. I froze, staring at them. They still argued, gesticulating furiously at one another. However, I couldn't hear their angry voices, despite the fact that, judging by their ill temperament, they must be screaming at one another. Paralyzed by shock, the white stick fell from my numb fingers, clattering onto the sidewalk. I turned to leave, desperate to flee from the haunting sight of the colonists in the road, but I was so panicked, in such a hurry, that I stepped on my cane. It rolled underfoot, and before I knew it, I pitched over, tumbling to the hard ground below. I didn't quite break my fall in time, banging my cheek hard on the floor and skinning my palms. I heard a cry from a passerby, a friendly, concerned woman who rushed to my side. She knelt beside me, helping me up, applying a Kleenex to my throbbing cheek, which she informed me was now bleeding. I tried to tell her that I was okay, that there was nothing to worry about, but this good Samaritan insisted on driving me to Dr. Harper's office to get my injuries looked at. Now I think back to it. I'm pretty sure she knew my obvious distress was nothing to do with the fall. At the time I was embarrassed and angry, but now I realize I owe her a debt of gratitude. Without her intervention, I don't know how much longer this would have gone on before I cracked up and ended up in an asylum after breaking down through sheer stress. Andrew, why don't you tell me what happened? Dr. Harper asked, gently dabbing at my cheek with disinfectant. I explained that I just lost my balance and that no harm was done, but I think he saw through my feeble protestation, through my underlying agitation. He didn't press or force the matter. He simply asked what might have caused my clumsiness. Then he asked how I'd been as of late. When I'd finished mumbling my way through the most non-committal answer I could muster, 
placed a gentle, reassuring hand on my shoulder. Andrew, he repeated gently, why don't you tell me what happened? I burst into tears. I told him how scared I was, how I'd fought so hard for my independence, and now I knew it would be taken from me. He listened patiently, then he asked me to tell him why I ever thought that. I paused then, took a deep breath, and thought about it. This was the point of no return. But really, what other option did I have? So, with tears streaming down my cheeks, I told Dr. Harper everything. I told him about the horse and carriage, the orange globe and the pilgrims. I told him how I'd been living each day in fear, how terrified I was, that I was losing my mind. Dr. Harper thought for a while, then he said, Andrew, I don't think you're losing your mind. The sense of relief at that moment was so powerful it overwhelmed me, rendering me speechless. You say that even though you've seen these things, you've never heard any noise from them. Have you detected any odors or experienced any other physical sensation, such as touching them? I shook my head no, and he patted me on the shoulder once again. Andrew, have you heard of Charles Bonnet's syndrome? he asked. Charles Bonnet, who? I asked, confused by this sudden, unexpected turn of conversation. Okay, let me explain, Dr. Harper said kindly. Charles Bonnet was a Swiss naturalist who was born in the 1700s. He discovered a curious condition in his elderly grandfather, who was nearly completely blind due to cataracts. The old man regularly experienced visual hallucinations, including random patterns and even people and places. Sound familiar? Yes, I replied, still confused. Am, am I suffering from dementia? No, Andrew, not at all. Dr. Harper reassured me. You know how perception works. In layman's terms, your eyes take in light via the iris and pupil, which is then processed via the retina and translated into electrical signals which are decoded by the brain, which simply organizes these signals into a recognizable image. Are you with me so far? I nodded, finally starting to understand. When the retina becomes damaged, such as those that have undergone macular degeneration, those signals become warped and jumbled, Dr. Harper went on. The brain still receives them, so it does its job, translating these distorted signals into an image. It kind of fills in the gaps for you. Sometimes it fills these gaps with colors, patterns, creatures, and places that aren't present. And this is called Charles Bonnet Syndrome. I nearly wept with relief. So I'm not mad? I cried. Not at all, the doctor replied. This is an entirely physical condition. Your mind is in full working order. If you were suffering any form of mental illness, your delusions wouldn't be limited to just the one sense. You'd hear these interlopers, smell them, even feel them. This is a condition solely related to your eyes, not your brain. As I left Dr. Harper's office, I felt as if a weight had been lifted from my shoulders. Sure, my vision was still an issue, 
But now I knew it was only a problem with my eyes, not my mind. I knew I could handle the situation. I was ready to face the world again. Since then, I've seen plenty of weird visions. I saw a huge waterfall in the park, complete with a hazy mist and butterflies flitting about it. I saw a Native American warrior, complete with huge feather headrests, sitting at a stool at the counter in the coffee shop. I saw an intricate and quite impossible structure of scaffolding crisscrossing the entire front of my apartment block. Hell, on the 4th of July last year, I even saw a great swooping green dragon in the sky twisting and cavorting through the air overhead. All looked utterly and completely real, yet now I knew they were simply tricks in the eye. They were no longer disturbing. In fact, I actually came to quite enjoy them, even looking at them as unique and entertaining little shows or works of art that existed purely for my pleasure and nobody else's. I came to welcome them. Then, a month ago, I saw her. It was night time. It's always night time when I see her. And I was just getting ready for bed. I walked into the kitchen to get myself a glass of water and actually cried out in alarm when I spotted the figure in the corner. She was tall, by far the tallest woman I'd ever seen, and even though she stood hunched, she stood at least six inches higher than me. I was used to seeing characters in dated and bizarre dress, but this was different somehow. It didn't seem like an outfit from any one time, instead a bizarre mishmash of items. She wore a tuxedo jacket, figure-hugging in black, tailored to the female body shape, over a dirty old ruffled dress shirt. To complete the ensemble, she wore a bright red bow tie. On her hands, which she held out to either side as if shrugging, or maybe feeling for rain, she wore dirty white gloves. The fingers were disproportionately long, almost spidery, and occasionally they twitched, as if she longed to grip and squeeze something in them. On her lower half, she wore shorts the same crimson as her bow tie, over opaque black nylons. Her legs were long, lithe, attractive, if the truth be told, the legs of a dancer. She also wore red heels, the same hue as her shorts and bow tie, but they sparkled and shimmered, bringing to mind Judy Garland's ruby slippers from The Wizard of Oz. As strange as this ensemble was, I couldn't tear my eyes from her face. Most of it was obscured by a jaunty bowler hat, tipped and tilted to hide her eyes and nose, but beneath the brim of her hat I could see the deathly pale skin of her face and a grin that sent shivers down my spine. It was wide, too wide, with entirely too many teeth. A smile is meant to be an expression of warmth. It's meant to feel welcoming and benevolent. But the look on this woman's face oozed malice. It felt much like the sort of glee I'd expect from a snake as it corners a rat. However, the thing that startled me most was that she had a third arm sprouting from her back, curled up and over her head like a scorpion's tail. It was longer than any arm should be, 
and the hand only had three fingers, like a claw. It was pointed straight at me, and as I swore in dismay and stumbled sideways, it seemed to track my movement. I stood, staring at the creepy figure for a few seconds, trying to get my head around the situation. She just stood there in the corner, grinning back. Finally, I realized that this was just another one of my hallucinations and breathed an audible sigh of relief. One of the tricks I've picked up over the months of suffering from Charles Bonnet Syndrome is to break the line of vision toward whichever stimulus is causing my brain to interrupt the images into the hallucination. Think of it like restarting a faulty computer, how refreshing the system debugs it. To this end, I close my eyes and count to five. Then, when I reopen them, the hallucination is gone. So, as I stared at the horrifying, malformed figure in my kitchen, I knew that to make the image go away, I simply had to close my eyes. I'll be honest here, when I counted to five, I hesitated a little before opening my eyes. If I'd opened my eyes and she still was standing there, smiling that wicked smile at me, I think I might have had a heart attack. She wasn't and I breathed another long sigh of relief, fetched my glass of water, and went back to bed. The tall woman haunted my thoughts in the days after I saw her. She was different from the other visions I had. Somehow she felt more real. It was this agitation that my buddy Jason picked up on when we met for lunch the following Friday. Jason was one of those same friends I tried to drive away shortly after I lost my vision. Yet he'd refused to give up on me, continuing to get in touch week after week. Good friends are hard to come by, but great friends, the ones who will be by your side for life, are even rare. Jason, God bless his kind heart, was one of the latter. You gotta tell me what's going on, dude, he said as we sat down over pizza. What do you mean? I asked, trying to brush it off. You're so distracted. It's like you're looking for something in here all the time. You've eaten like one slice of pizza in the time it's taken me to eat four. So, I repeat, you gotta tell me what's going on, Jason said, waving a slice of pizza around for emphasis. Oh, it's nothing, I replied, feeling a little stupid. I just had a hallucination a couple of nights ago that really got to me. I thought you were cool with those now. He said, putting the pizza slice down. Yeah, I am. I mean, I was, but this was different. I replied, resigned to talking about it. She scared me. She? Jason asked. His interest clearly piqued. Tell me about it. So I did. I described the tall woman and how she'd appeared to me. I explained that unlike any of my other hallucinations, she felt more real and that she was the first to feature such a weird and unsettling mutation. Sure, I'd seen smaller versions of people in the past, a phenomenon referred to as Lilliputian by medical professionals, but the extra appendage and impossibly distorted face were something I had yet to encounter thus far. I think it was that, combined with the unnerving expectant stance, that had disturbed me the most. 
So, Jason said after I'd finished, say she had great legs. Shut up, asshole. I laughed, throwing my napkin at him. No, seriously, I get it, man. Jason replied, passing the napkin back to me. If I walked into a room and a giant mutant was waiting for me, it'd scare the shit out of me, too. But you know what caused you to see this? It's like the coachman in that waterfall you saw. It's a condition that you know you have, and it's one that you know how to deal with, okay? I know, I know, I replied. Thanks, man, you're right. I did feel better, too, so I smiled at him, took a big bite of my pizza and changed the subject, asking him about his psycho ex, a conversation he was all too happy to dive into. The next time I saw the tall woman, just under a week later, I was brushing my teeth. I stood at the wash basin, brushing away, when I spotted a figure in the mirror. She was out in the dark hallway, peering around the door behind me. That same sinister grin I'd seen before stretched her narrow face into a distorted grimace. The dirty bowler hat pushed down over her eyes once again. Each of those three spottery long hands gripped the door frame. As crazy as this sounds, it felt like she was trying to avoid being spotted. I cried out, spilling toothpaste foam all over the mirror, my toothbrush clattering into the basin. I spun around, my heart thumping in my chest, my breathing ragged in my throat. She wasn't there. Of course she wasn't. The doorway was empty. I tiptoed forward, hesitantly, trying to look around the doorframe into the hallway without actually sticking my neck out into its shadowy confines. The seconds ticked by as I drew closer and closer. Couldn't see anything, so finally... With a whisper of self-affirmation, I stepped out of the bathroom. The hallway was empty, as was the rest of my apartment. I was shaken again. This was the first time I'd seen a hallucination in a reflection, and I wasn't even sure that I'd actually seen it. Now, as I sit here, writing this, knowing what would follow, I think I thought like that to try to protect myself to shield myself from the truth. I was an idiot. A full fortnight passed without incident. Oh, sure, I saw a flash of color one day, a dancing yellow lightning bolt that zigzagged back and forth on the street outside my apartment. But that was exactly the sort of thing I'd come to expect from my condition. It was exciting, otherworldly, but it wasn't scary. Not like she was. In retrospect, that fortnight was blissful. It was a reminder of what life could be like, the existence that I'd carved out for myself since my diagnosis. Life was good. The night that changed the way I viewed the tall woman, last night, I'd been out and had a couple of drinks. I met the other guys with visual impairment for dinner, and we ended up at a bar afterwards. I wasn't hammered, but we got through plenty of beer between us, and by the time I stepped out into the cool night air, I felt decidedly lightheaded. It took me a while to make it home, laughing and talking to a couple of the other guys from our group as we strolled along. It had been a great evening. It's probably the last truly good one I'll ever have. I bid the other guys good night and, fumbling with my key, let myself in. 
With swaying steps, I strolled into my hallway, slamming the door a little too loudly behind me. I took off my jacket, hung it on the hook by the door, and then hit the light switch. She was waiting at the end of the hallway. All three hands held aloft into claws, reaching for me. That same maddening, malevolent grin on her pale face. I swore again, louder than ever, actually jumping back a step, recoiling from the impossibly tall and terrifying figure lying in wait in my own home. The tall woman didn't move. She just stood there, staring and smiling at me. I stared back, but I sure as hell didn't smile. Jesus Christ. I muttered under my breath. You know how you can feel a little paranoid after a few beers? That feeling of non-specific post-alcohol dread? Imagine that, combined with a giant, grinning mutant woman, suddenly appearing in your home. Suffice it to say, it was very, very, very uncool. I don't need this. I sighed and closed my eyes. One, two, three, four, five. When I opened my eyes, her face was just a foot from my own, grinning wider than ever. She dashed the length of the hallway and was now standing so close that her long, grasping arms were on either side of me, her fingers twitching and clawing at the air around my face. I could see her chest heaving, as if she were actually laughing silently at my attempts to dismiss her, as if the thought that I could ever be free of her was amusing. I screamed a full-bodied shriek of terror and actually dropped to my knees, covering my head as a to fend off an expected blow. It never came. Finally, I lowered my hands, gasping for breath, shaking. The hallway was empty, the tall woman, nowhere to be seen. I stayed there, on my knees for a moment, gasping for breath. Then I was on my feet and I turned and ran out of the apartment, out of the building, and into the street. I stood there, shivering, terrified beyond reason, without a clue as to what to do next. Finally, I pulled my phone from my pocket and I made a phone call. Hey, Andy, what's up? Jason asked. Jason... I need you to come here, I said, sobbing. Jason didn't ask why, didn't complain. Instead, he simply replied, I'm on my way. Less than twenty minutes later, his car pulled up outside, and he dashed over to the steps outside my building where I was sitting, shivering. He threw his jacket around my shoulders and asked what happened, his voice filled with concern. She's in there, I stammered. The tall one, she's back. Okay, okay, he said, gently helping me to my feet. Come on, man, let's go in there and check it out. I wish I could say that I was brave when we went inside, but I'd be lying. I cowered behind Jason, one hand on his shoulder as we made our way through my home. Of course, we didn't find a thing. We're talking a giant mutant woman in a pokey little one-bedroom apartment. Where the hell was she going to hide? Finally, after we checked every single room twice... I had to admit that she was gone. I'm so sorry, ma'am. I apologized, feeling genuinely stupid. 
I got scared and... Uh, sorry, man. Hey, forget about it, buddy. Jason said, so I'm here now. Where do you keep your booze? Half a bottle of bourbon later, we were both feeling pretty talkative. Sheesh, you know, it's just kind of different, you know? Tried to explain. I get it, I get it, he said. It's like you saw something bad and you feel bad and that's bad. He didn't get it. No, she's different, you know? I explained. I never had a repeat hallucination before. And they've never been scary, you know. She's not like the others. Dude, Jason said, taking another sip of bourbon. You've got, like, Charlie Bonnie syndrome. And you know that makes you see shit. So he waved his hands in the air like a magician who'd just performed a trick. I know, I know, I replied. No, listen, Andy, he said. You know it makes you see shit. It's just your eyes, yeah? You didn't hear anything. You didn't feel anything. This is how that stuff goes. It's your eyes, and I know it's scary, man, but you've been through, like, hell and high water in your life so far. You're tough. One of the toughest, bravest guys I know. And you can handle some creepy hallucination, bitch. I laughed. I couldn't help it. <laughs> she is a very creepy hallucination bitch, though, dude. He laughed, too, and we both took a drink. You know, that could help. He said, finally, his voice thoughtful. What, drinking? I asked. No, well, well, yes, it does. <laughs> he giggled. I mean, like, demystifying her. You should give her a name, something stupid so she's not scary. I've got to say that as much as I like creepy hallucination bitch, that's a bit of a mouthful. <laughs> I laughed. Yeah, I get that, he replied. Suddenly, something he said came back to me. How about Helen? I suggested. Helen Highwater. Awesome, he said, then raised his glass. There's the Helen, buddy. To Helen, I smiled and drained my glass. Jason spent the night on my sofa, mainly because he'd had too much to drink to even think about getting behind the wheel of a vehicle. But honestly, I think the reason he drank so much was so he'd have an excuse to stay and keep an eye on me. I'm glad he did, knowing that he was there made me feel safer, and I was able to get some sleep. It gave me a sense of security to know that if the strange vision I'd just christened Helen was to happen again, I'd be able to call on him for support. This morning, we both needed support. Oh, God, it feels like a mule kicked me in the head. He groaned when I made my way into the living room. Yeah, I replied, my own head thumping. Joe's? Joe's. He replied firmly and staggered to his feet. As we drank strong black coffee and ate muffins, we didn't talk much. Finally, Jason broke the silence. So, you feel cool now? He asked, his mouth still full of blueberry muffin. I nodded. Yeah, I think so. Not still freaked out about you-know-who? He asked. Helen? I replied with a smile. No, I really don't think I am. I reckon I can handle some creepy hallucination, bitch. <laughs> Good. 
He laughed, giving me a hearty pat on the back. That's cool, man. I bet you can. Now, as I sit here, cowering in my bathroom, too scared to go out into my apartment, I know we were both wrong about everything. Remember how earlier I told you that the thought of being institutionalized, that the very idea of losing my grasp on reality was the most terrifying thing I could imagine? Now I'd welcome that, because the alternative is far, far worse. After breakfast, I said goodbye to Jason, and he climbed into his car and drove away. The day passed without incident, and when Lois stopped by this afternoon, she even commented on how upbeat I seemed. You got a lady in your life? she asked casually. I laughed at that, wondered what she'd think if she knew the truth. <laughs> yeah, I chuckled, something like that. How oh, good for you, she sniffed. You make sure you treat her right. That tickled me even more, and I had to bite my lip. Uh, sure, I replied. I'll do my best. Tonight, uh, still a little wiped from the exertion of the previous evening, I decided to turn in early and brushed my teeth, washed my hands and face, and got changed. Finally, I fetched a glass of water and walked into my bedroom. I climbed into bed and instantly felt so, so relaxed. Within mere seconds, I was ready for sleep. That sudden, overwhelming drowsiness that comes when you've spent a whole day keeping sleep at bay. I decided that resistance was futile and sat up to switch off the light. I nearly didn't see her, but as I reached for the switch, I caught a glimpse of something out of the corner of my eye. My heart leapt into my throat as I turned to the foot of the bed. The tall woman was crouching there, her grinning face staring at me from just beyond my feet. So many teeth. Her long, slender fingers spread out over my blankets, twitching slightly as she gripped the end of the bed, slowly excruciatingly so. Her third misshapen arm came into view over her shoulder, joining her other hands on my bedding. I froze, utterly petrified. I was at a crossroads here, arriving at a pivotal moment that had been coming for some time. But this time I'd had enough. You don't scare me anymore, I said, my voice filled with defiance and anger. I'm not letting you do this to me. I reached across to the light switch. Good night, Helen, I said triumphantly, then flicked it plunging the room into darkness. I laid there, a sense of tremendous pride surging through me, and I grinned to myself in my warm, comfortable bed, overjoyed at the emotional victory of overcoming my own fear. And then it happened. The thing that led me here, something that turned my blood to ice water and my bowels to jelly. Good night, Andrew. Her rasping voice hissed from the darkness. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take. 
Whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now, all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Our second story today comes to us from author Lucretia Vestea. I present to you, Joe Made a Choice. All Joe Jenkins wanted was to go to bed. Work had been tough on him, and lunch hardly edible. Not to mention his car's CD player, yes, CD player, was broken, and no radio station was playing Alice in Chains on a loop like he would have liked. All Joe Jenkins wished for that moment in time was to lay down and cuddle to his sleeping wife right after tucking Josephine in. Professional letdowns aside, it went as fairy tale perfect as it did every evening. Joe would enter his daughter's room, would chat a little about how her day went, then kiss her on the forehead and wish her pleasant dreams. Those almond shaped green eyes were his entire world, and neither a stressful day at work nor a speeding ticket would stop Joe from giving his baby girl her good night kiss. Daddy, I think there's someone under my bed. It was the same as every night. Joe was getting a little tired of it, but even so, he was her hero, so he did what every hero would have done and got on his knees. There's nothing to worry for you, honey. There's nothing under. And there she was. From under the bed, his frightened little girl whispered with teary green eyes, Daddy, I think there's something on my bed. All Joe Jenkins asked for was for a quiet, peaceful, good night's sleep. He knew that website, well, the website where all the world's shortest horror stories were posted, being the board security guard he was, he would always indulge in those stories during work. What else was he to do except scanning IDs and 
taking good looks at the twenty or so individuals going in and out of the office building for the entirety of his ten-hour shift. Reading short stories, horror stories, was a good way to pass the time, and funny enough, this scenario was exactly one of them. The thing is, the author of that particular story never wrote what was to happen after the parent gets up. Joe Jenkins felt all the liquid in his body boil. He had no choice, however. Joe was a skeptic to the bone, but not even the mind of a skeptic is immune to a hypothesis. Joe felt like he was risking being eaten alive as he lifted his upper body to look on the bed again. All of his 180 pounds of muscle shook in the process, but no, no monster in sight. Just his beautiful little Josie waiting for him to tell her that everything's fine, that nobody's there. Joe was still shaking. What the hell was going on? Was his mind playing tricks on him? He ducked down and looked under the bed and knew. Can't come out now, Daddy. It's cold down here. His heart was breaking, seeing her that way, but what was he to do? When's your birthday? Both girls answered simultaneously. Eighteenth of May. Eighteenth of May. Joe cursed under his breath. If this was a dream, it was time to wake up. But this couldn't have been a dream. He could remember everything that happened prior that day, and the picture before him was not milky at the edges, as dreams usually are. This was real. A real nightmare. Come out of there, baby. The baby part slipped out involuntarily. How could he tell which one was his real baby? They were absolutely identical. Josie let out a high-pitched yelp when he saw another Josie rise from underneath her bed. It's all right, honey, Joe assured her. Daddy's here. There's no need for you to be scared. Sit up, please. She did as she was told, never taking her gaze off of her doppelganger. Josie, from under the bed, hid behind her father with the self-composure of a deer in the middle of a wolf gathering. It's all right. It's okay. This is just a misunderstanding. Joe's mind was wheeling. Go take a seat next to her, please. Both Josies began to protest lively as tears welled up in their irises. Neither of them wanted to approach the other. Quiet. Go sit over there. I need to think. The girls went silent, even though their sobs would escape from between their lips as the distance between them got smaller. The Josie on the bed grabbed the headboard as if her life depended on it. The other Josie approached the bed very wearily and sat down so far from the other that she would have fallen off the bed if her feet weren't supporting her from the floor. Both girls were staring daggers into the other, the amount of fear in their eyes undeniable and identically genuine. Joe Jenkins looked at the one on the right and then the one on the left. He got closer and looked at the one on the left and then the one on the right. He was a security guard for Pete's sake. Weird noises coming from the office building when everybody else was gone never scared him. But this... This was on a whole different level. There was no denying it. One of them was the real Josephine, and the other one, an 
otherworldly imposter. Which was which, however, he couldn't tell, and it was shattering him into millions of pieces. What kind of father couldn't tell his beloved child from a fake? Not him. He'll be able to tell which is which in no time. Josie. Both Josies looked his way, unexpectedly. One of you is telling the truth, the other one is lying. Joe saw this in a cartoon once. He thought the trick was brilliant, even though he never imagined he'd need it in real life. If you were the other, which one would you say is the real Josie? The two girls exchanged a glance, then looked at their father, dead determined to prove him uh, that the other one is a liar. She would say that she's the real Josie. So would she, Daddy. She would say she's the real Josie. Joe bit the inside of his cheek. Of course it didn't work, and it was stupid of him to believe that it would. Please scooch closer to each other. The hurricane of cried-out nose would have been enough to wake up Jane, but his wife was the last thing on his mind at the moment. Girls, I'm losing my nerve here. Either you get closer to each other, or I'm leaving the room and turning the light off on my way out. The two girls went silent and scooched next to each other so fast, the bedsheet almost caught fire. Joe crouched in front of them. Everything about the two girls was identical, even the thin streak of blonde hair and the long, straight, light brown mane, even the two small yellow dots in their left eyes. Please, show me your knees. Both girls lifted their nighties above their knees. Good Lord, it was there on both of them. A deep purple spot in the shape of a whale on their right knees. It was from last week when Josie, practicing riding her new bike without the helping wheels, and went straight into the mailbox. I need to see your left shoulders. The girls complied, and there was again. Two identical scars from the vaccination right after birth. Open your mouths and stick out your tongues. And so they did, and funny enough, Joe was deeply disappointed to see no pool of never-ending darkness in either cavity. The insides of their mouths were perfectly identical. Tongue, throat, straight milk-white teeth. Jesus, even the left canines were slightly bent in the same direction. He grabbed his daughter on the left and glued his ear to her chest, a scared little heart beating rapidly. He grabbed the other one on the right and repeated the process, a little heart beating just as fast and just as frightened as the other one. Joe was desperate and frustrated and so scared, he debated with himself if he should ask Jane if she hid the existence of Josie's twin from him or something. It was so crazy but so was the picture before him. That's it. I'm getting your mother. And just as he got up and took two steps toward the door, I can prove I'm the real Josie, Daddy. His daughter on the right got to her feet, shivering. The one on the left seemed less scared and more curious. Joe looked straight in the eyes of the one who spoke. How? Last week I asked you to keep a secret for me, a secret only you and me know. 
Josie on the left went googly-eyed. It was true. Josie told Joe a week before that she will never go to college, ever. She told him that when she grows up, she'll be perfectly happy with working at the 7-Eleven at the end of their street, that now that he knows this, he and Mommy can stop fighting about money. What Josie didn't know is that Joe had already told this secret to Jane. It had been a long conversation. They laughed about it, cried about it, and apologized to each other for always arguing about finances. Best sex Joe ever had. And just as he was about to grab his daughter on the right and drag her away from the abomination on the left, left Josie blurted out the entirety of the secret Josie on the right had in mind. Great. Back to square one. Don't trust her, Daddy. I'm the real Josie. This better be good. Joe heard himself whisper, sounding like a gang leader who had to listen to excuses from new recruits. When I was four, I got really sick after you let me eat a whole carton of ice cream. You threw the box away before Mom got home and told her you didn't know what happened. Joe froze. He had no idea she still remembered that. She was half her current age and out cold for the better part of two days. No, that's nothing, the other Josie yelled, standing up to prove a point. How about the time we went to the park and you started chatting to a friend and that man almost took me away? Joe's jaw almost fell to the ground. How the hell could she remember that? She could barely walk when that happened. Both Josies were on the verge of crying. Now when what doesn't matter... You once carried me on one arm and talked on the phone with the other. I saw an orange butterfly and went to grab it, and you dropped me on the kitchen floor. Joe clasped his hands over his ears. No, 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 no. She did not remember that. How was that even possible? She was just a baby, not even five months old. It was the very first time Joe had to take care of baby Josephine all by himself, while Jane ran her errands. He was on the phone with his wife to remind her that they were out of rice. He'd even forgotten that the butterfly was orange, but he remembered it now clear as day. It was bright and pretty, and the baby squealed in delight as she reached out to grab it. Yeah, honey, everything's fine. The baby fell headfirst on the cold towels from a five-foot height. Joe, what the hell was that? Jane's mechanical voice was nothing compared to his beating heart. The world was suddenly so loud and yet so still as he looked into the blank, empty eyes of his baby laying on the kitchen floor. It felt like looking into plasticized cardboard, shiny and dead. And then she blinked once, then twice, then opened her mouth and wailed louder than a police siren. It was the first and last time he was happy to hear her cry. Stop! No more! I don't want to hear no more. All right? He was breathing heavily. The girls exchanged glances again. They weren't afraid of each other anymore. It was worse. They were angry with each other. The look on their faces said murder, and it terrified Joe to no end. 
It's okay, loves. I believe you. You don't have to fight. You're both daddy's little girls. You're both my darlings, little Josie. And we'll be a very happy family. I'll talk to your mother and... No! The Josie on the left trampled with her feet on the floor, something she always did when she didn't agree with her parents on something. I'm the real one, daddy! said Josie on the right from between quivering lips. That always happened when she was upset. She had it from her mother. Both of them were approaching him with tight fists and sunken eyebrows. How about the time you hit the homeless old man and kept driving like nothing ever happened? Joe started weeping. The other Josie pushed the one that just spoke to the side with her shoulder. How about the time you pushed Stephanie down the stairs and made her lose my older brother? Please, stop. Both occurrences happened before Josie was even born. He hit the homeless man on the way to the hospital. Jane was in labor with his princess. He had no other choice. Stephanie, though, he was desperate. He'd been married to Jane for a few months, and she was becoming dull and dry. And Joe wasn't used to married life. For God's sakes, he slipped. It happens to every man. If it wasn't out of love... It wasn't even out of need. It was just for the exhilaration of change, even if it was for five minutes. It wasn't his fault that the dumb bitch lied about taking the pill anyway. No, 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 Josie. You're not allowed to tell your mother that. Something sparkled in both Josie's eyes. They threw each other a cautious glance and then looked at Daddy in a slow motion. If you don't choose me, I'm going to tell mommy about Stephanie. Josie's room seemed to darken and close in on Joe in a promise of eternal suffocation. Joe fell to his knees. The other Josie spoke. If you don't choose me, I'll tell mommy, grandma, grandpa, and everybody from the office about spicy studies. The room was choking Joe. He couldn't breathe. How in the world could Josie know about spicy studies? That was supposed to be an even better sealed secret than him killing his unborn child and crippling his former mistress for life. Back in college, Joe's brilliant idea for easy money had been a porn site. As its name suggested, the protagonists had all been kids in his year or younger, who, both with and without consent, needed spiked drinks before participating. Jane thought Joe finished college with flying colors, but Joe got expelled after just three semesters for ruining 43 young and promising lives, that number not including the members of the actors' families. Joe's head was in his hands. He was struggling to breathe. He wanted to turn deaf then and there, to stop hearing all the dreadful truths his doubled little girl spilled out on him like destructive fires of reckoning. He wanted her to stop. Involuntary images of him choosing one of them and choking the other to death popped into his head, and he knew, he knew that if he wanted to go through with it, he would have to hurry. His little Josephines had already opened Pandora's box. Oh, they did more than that. They were swimming in it and throwing its contents all over the place. But Joe's Pandora's box had a false base, 
and if Joe wanted to proceed with the murderous plot, he'd need to hustle before one of them found it. And if you don't choose me, I'll tell everybody that it wasn't sudden, unexpected infant death when baby Auntie died. They discovered the fake bottom. It was over. Joe's biggest, darkest secret was not only one he kept from the world, but one he kept from himself. He looked up at the girls, his face wet with salty eye water, feeling infinitely inferior to his two all-knowing eight-year-olds. Joe wasn't a 39-year-old anymore. He was a seven-year-old boy watching the slow rise and fall of his sleeping baby sister's chest, wondering what would happen if he just put his teddy bear on her face for a couple of seconds. His mother called for him, and the seconds turned to minutes. He didn't check the rise and fall of her chest again when he went back for the teddy, so when the doctor diagnosed her passing as a case of sudden, unexpected infant death, Who's he to argue? Little Joe. Pathetic little Joe. Sorry, little murderous Joe looked up at the two girls and was back to his guilty, bloody-handed, seven-year-old self again. Julie, is that you? Not one, but both Josies answered him by smiling and holding hands. Joe was less than human then. Girls, he wept. Julie, Josie, I don't understand what you want from me. Their voices were even and unrelenting. Choose. The hope of his future and the dread of his past were mirroring each other before him. He had to make a decision, but how could he? Ignorance only postpones doom, and regret is not enough to be forgiven. He couldn't choose. So Joe did the only thing he could do. He got up, turned around, and entered his nuptial bedroom. Jane was sleeping soundly, oblivious to the world's colliding in their daughter's bedroom. Joe didn't even shoot her a final glance. He went straight for his ties drawer and picked one. It wasn't his favorite, but it didn't matter. The girls looked his way and followed him with their eyes as he entered the bathroom, always holding hands, never letting go of each other. Joe tied the knot neatly around his neck and knotted the other end around his toothbrush. He didn't know if it would hold, but he was dying to try, literally. Joe grabbed Josie's plastic ladder for brushing teeth, placed it next to the open door, threw his tie on the other side, closed the door, and yanked the ladder from underneath his feet. His toothbrush held. Ironically enough, it held just enough for Joe to let out his dying breath. It snapped, not even ten seconds afterward, and Joe's lifeless body fell to the bathroom towels. The girls knew he was gone even before the toothbrush gave in. Still holding hands, they turned to Josie's bedroom and hid under the bed where they both belonged. Neither of them was the real Josie. The real Josie was sleeping in her parents' bed, hidden in the covers and her mother's arms, the place she always turned to when the monsters under her bed were upsetting her. 
But that wasn't Joe's concern anymore. Joe already made his choice. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thanks for joining me tonight for Scary Stories Told in the Dark. If you like what you heard and would like to hear a premium extended edition of tonight's episode, which includes two more terrifying tales, visit simplyscarypodcast.com today and click the Patrons link in the menu at the top of the screen. You'll find yourself on Chilling Tales for Dark Nights, where you can sign up for a season pass and get access to all 24 ad-free extended episodes from this season or sign up as a patron for just five dollars per month and get access to not just my show but our network's audio archive of hundreds of previous releases including premium versions of our other shows not only that but you'll be lending your support to this very program and help me continue bringing nightmares to life each and every week until next week stay spooky get some sleep if you can <laughs>
do us a favor and hit the subscribe button and the bell notification icon for CTFDN as well to get more spooky tales from me and the crew and another episode of this program each and every Wednesday. And don't forget to hit that thumbs up button to tell us how we're doing and leave a kind word or a request. And don't forget to visit us at ChillingTalesForDarkNights.com and consider supporting the team by becoming a patron. In addition to helping us out, you'll get exclusive access to our audio archive and ad-free downloads of all your favorite stories, including those you've heard on this program. As for me, I'll be back next Wednesday with more terrifying tales to keep you up all night. But that's all right. Who needs sleep anyway? <laughs> Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. If you own a home, you know how much work it can take, whether it's everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality. It can be hard just to know where to start, but now all you need to do is Angie that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.